Hello, you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about the 1996 classic, That Thing You Do. We'll be joined by our friend Shelby Hintzy. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. I just want to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and uh, at Apple subscriptions, two different places where you can get the same bonus episodes for uh, supporting us financially. We really appreciate it. It helps us pay our bills. Your support helps us uh, get everyone paid who makes the show. It's a lot of musicians. <laughs> so thank you for supporting the arts in multiple ways by supporting the show with bonus episodes. Right now we have a bonus episode about Jurassic World Dominion. It's been really great to hear from you about that episode in particular. Uh, we hear especially from the dinosaur fans <laughs> and dinosaur nerds. And it's been nice to hear from you about what that movie gets largely wrong. <laughs> We have a bonus episode coming out next month about which fictional characters resonate most with us. That is a uh, suggestion we got from a listener. And if you have a suggestion about what we should cover in a bonus episode, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. You can get in touch with us on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. So again, thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon and on Apple subscriptions. And uh, I hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes. You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Finally, we put out playlists that accompany each of our episodes. They are inspired by the movie. They are inspired by our conversations about the movie. Uh, people seem to enjoy them. You can find that linked in the show notes. All right. So we're talking about that thing you do. We're talking about it with our friend Shelby Hensey. That thing you do, of course, is a 1996 American comedy film co-starring written and directed by Tom Hanks. In his feature writing and directorial debut, it tells the story of the rise and fall of a fictional 1960s one-hit wonder pop band. It stars Tom Everett Scott, Liv Tyler, Jonathan Skech, Steve Zahn, Ethan Embry, and Charlize Theron. The film resulted in a musical hit with the titular song of the same name. The song is amazing. We talk about it a lot in the episode. The song itself was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song. And we don't talk so much about that in this episode. We talk specifically about how great the song is as a standalone song. But yes, the song which is a fictional song, but was released on this side of the fiction, nonfiction binary. <laughs> the song itself was written by Adam Schlesinger of the band The Fountains of Wayne. Uh, unfortunately, Adam Schlesinger passed a few years back due to COVID-related complications. But he wrote this song as a personal exercise, submitted it to accompany the movie, didn't expect it to go anywhere. And uh, yeah, it went everywhere. He performed it with Mike Viola, who is an American producer, musician, songwriter, and singer best known for his work with Panic at the Disco, Andrew Bird, Mandy Moore, and Jenny Lewis. 
And he did the vocals on the song. Schlesinger did the backup vocals. And uh, it's great. It's a great song. (laughs) It helped make this movie what it is. This episode is made possible with support from Tab for a Cause. Tab for a Cause is a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while doing your thing online. Whenever you open a new tab, you'll see a beautiful photo in a small ad, and part of that ad money goes towards a charity of your choice. So if you want to do this, you want to help raise money for charity when you open up your browser to do some extra research on understanding the background of the song, That Thing You Do. (laughs) You want to understand, you know, who uh, covered this and you want to find out, of course, that Newfound Glory covered it and Green Day covered it or Billy Joe Armstrong specifically from Green Day. The Knack, the band The Knack, who sang My Sharona. That doesn't matter if you're looking this up and while you're looking it up, you want to help raise money for charity with Tab for a Cause. Sign up at tabforacause.org slash you are good. Again, tabforacause.org slash you are good. Tab for a Cause, a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while doing your thing online. So I think that's all you need to know before we dive in to that thing you do. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate that you are spending this time with us. You, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Mystery guest. Please let us know who you are, what you do, and uh, why this was the movie that you uh, you brought to your head. Hi, I'm Shelby Hincy. I describe myself as someone with a lot of opinions who hasn't figured out how to monetize them yet, <laughs> which I hear is probably like a good thing at this point. So yeah. So I'm a writer. My day job, I'm a social media manager. So I'm on social media far too much. My weekly, like how many hours you've been on your phone notification is so embarrassing. (laughs) It just says embarrassing. It doesn't even give you a number. You know what I feel like when that (laughs) notification comes up is Julianne Moore in the pharmacy scene in Magnolia when the pharmacist (laughs) is like, this is some uh, heavy stuff here. You don't want to mix this, you know? And she's like, I have death in my house. like you don't know my life stop yes you know what i'm doing what i can and you call me lady yes and what's your relationship to that thing you do so i am like a that thing you do evangelist Hmm. i think it was basically the only movie that wasn't a disney movie that we had on vhs growing up (laughs) and i would watch it all the time i was obsessed with it none of my friends had ever seen it I'm not a huge like movie rewatcher mm. unless I'm watching it with somebody who hasn't seen it before. And then I'm like insufferable. <laughs> I'm like, we have to watch it right now. And I'm going to quote the whole thing. And I'm probably like the worst to watch movies with. But <laughs> yeah, so I would like make all my friends watch it. We watched it like at my 17th birthday. We had like an outdoor movie and we watched this. Mm. Once I got to college, I started like meeting other people who had actually seen this movie and it just like opened a whole new world of people who got my jokes. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been amazing. One of my goals this summer is to go through and make a ton of gifs of quotes from this movie and the family stone. Yes. That's a very important goal. Those are like my two quotable (laughs) movies that I use all the time and there's just no gifs of them. 
Yeah, that's true. I have to do everything myself. <laughs> and I'm going to do that this summer. Can I ask, is there a reason, like, why do you think this was, like, the only movie that you had in your family that, like, wasn't a Disney movie? Like, how did this pass? <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't know. That's a great question. I should have asked my parents that. I know we did have Titanic, too. But it was like never opened. Hmm. Like I think it's still in the plastic, um, in the box somewhere. If you don't open the plastic, that ship never sinks. Exactly, exactly. There's always room on the door if you don't open the plastic. So yeah, I think this one was just you know it was fun. It had Tom Hanks in it. I mean, he's basically a Disney character, right? Yeah, he's in a lot of Disney movies. And as I said to Sarah, it, it has Tom Hanks in it, and then he cast four versions of himself, like the Ninja Turtles. Well, it's like how when Stephen King wrote The Stand, all the male characters are different aspects of his psyche. That makes sense. It's like that. Yeah. I know that they had when they were casting it, they had this trying to decide if they should have Tom Everett Scott because he looked so much like Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I totally had that for a long time. I would watch it and then I'd be like, oh, there's Tom Hanks. And then Tom Hanks would come on and be like, oh, no, there is Tom Hanks. So, <laughs> Which one of them has a beard is the question. Right. He's very splash Tom Hanks. Yes. Tom Everett Scott is like if Tom Hanks, if somebody went after him with like fine grained sandpaper really <laughs> aggressively in 1982. Amen. Yes. Sarah, OK, before we go any further, for the unfortunate soul <laughs> that has not had this delightful movie rain down upon them. Oh, <laughs> what is what is that thing you do? What happens? I mean, Alex. You've asked for me to sing now, unfortunately, so it has to okay, happen. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul. Go ahead, make your wish. And your wish is to hear a summary of that thing you do, I assume. <laughs> I really like how that way you were like, I, this is the logical next step. You said poor perfectly. unfortunate soul. If I don't <laughs> sing it, I'll be playing it in my head for an hour and then I won't make any sense. Beautiful. So, hello, Howard Ashman. You're always with us. Well, we love so, you. So, that thing you do... I got a kick out of this partly because coincidentally I was just in Erie, Pennsylvania, which like Ooh. still looks like it appears in this movie. I don't even know if they filmed it in Erie, but there are large swaths of Erie where you could just film a movie set in 1964 and not really have to change much. So it's about <laughs> Skitch Patterson. That's his name, right? Yes. <laughs> Who is a well-behaved young guy who is working in his dad's appliance shop in downtown Erie, PA or Main Street or whatever. And there's a local band whose drummer injures himself trying to vault over a parking meter. This band includes both Steve Zahn and Giovanni Ribisi, which is wonderful. Because whenever I see one of them in something from the 90s, I immediately identify him as the other one and then figure out who it really is. And they're both just in this, so it saves you a trip. And so they need a drummer, and so they know that Skitch used to drum, and he drums quietly at night when he's doing the books. There's like a lot of Empire Records crossover here, mm -hmm. I think, which is also amazing. And so he joins the band to play for just this one night, but then he speeds at the tempo of their song, That Thing You Do. It goes really great and their band takes off locally, like things just kind of keep building for them. And they're discovered by a manager and he's like, we're going to take you to Pittsburgh. And they're like, Pittsburgh? I never thought I'd play Pittsburgh. And then they're managed by Tom Hanks. One thing I noticed watching this 
is how low the conflict is. It's like mm. the conflict all is saved for like the last 15 minutes. Really? Truly. And it's very low key. Like nobody yells, nobody throws anything. There's not a scene where anyone like runs out into the rain or whatever. It just sort of quietly the it's it's you know what this movie is also like it's like the commitments mm, yes where like you get the band together they start doing well things are getting exciting and then as a consequence of their own success the band falls apart so yeah. Mark he's not Mark in this movie but he's Mark in Empire Records and he's here now Ethan Embry is lost when he just like starts doing sit ups in front of a couple of Marines I believe at a restaurant and then just is stuck doing sit-ups <laughs> just that's where until he joins up <laughs> <laughs> and jimmy the leader of the band whose adoring girlfriend is played by Liv tyler and who has almost nothing to do but we sure do love to see her gets too big of an ego and storms off oh yeah and steve zahn falls in love with i believe a playmate and they go get married after he wins big in blackjack and i love his character and we'll talk about him a lot and then it just ends with skitch and faye the recently like within five minutes ago dumped girlfriend of jimmy getting together and choosing not to pursue fame but to play jazz and fall in love and live in the pacific northwest <laughs> and that's it's just it's so about the ride it's so and i had never seen it before and i had the best time sir what's your local jazz station called do you think that he knows about your local jazz station kmhd yeah i would hope that when he's down in portland he he's like oh this kmhd they play some great stuff that's the mount hood jazz is that what it is yes yeah, uh, mount hood community college it's a it. great jazz station yeah alex has been subjected to my taste in local radio shelby tell me Tell us what resonates about this. Like, why is it a movie that when you went to college and you could quote it and people got the quotes, like you felt like they were your people? I think like Sarah said, like, I love that it is just like low conflict, Like, there mm. really isn't a bad guy per se. You know, maybe Jimmy a little bit, but you kind of get it also. Yeah. And Tom Hanks's character is a little bit of an asshole, but only like a tiny bit, just enough asshole that it's like vermouth and a martini. You're right. like, oh, that's nice. He's a contract guy. Like the contract guy needs at least 10% asshole in him. And like when he takes over the contract from the local guy, there's no like hostile takeover or right. anything. It's just like the first manager who has a really nice camper is like, <laughs> oh, here, I'm going to send you off to this new guy because he can do more for you. So I just love the like pleasantness of it. Mm. Um, it's one yeah. of those movies too that like every time you watch it, unless unless you're me at this point who can quote the whole thing, but every time you watch it, you find something new. There's a new little little quote or you missed something the first time. Steve Zahn is just so hilarious. And it was very hard for me to see his penis in White Lotus because i mean i'm I'm guessing it's not his i didn't know his penis was in white lotus that's the first thing that's made me want to watch that show. <laughs> i'm guessing it's not his because you don't see his face no in it too but still i was just like no mm. yeah it's steve's on yeah some things are sacred i will say also that i was in college before i realized that this wasn't actually a true story 
I feel like it probably yeah. is in a general way for like 800 bands. Right. right. Well, what felt so real about it, and especially about the time, and this is one of the delightful details. And by the way, I want to agree. I think like a thing that this does even beyond the like it does all the conflict is so minimal if even if it's even could be labeled conflict is i think it somehow does all of that without ever being condescending yeah like it has the pleasantness it has the pleasantness of a movie with no conflict but it also lets people have interest and passion and like that's mm-hmm. usually the thing that you have to strip to have a no conflict right. movie but the details to your point shelby about feeling like this might have been a real band the details that they commit time to with regard to like what the band is turning through, like the first seven and a half minutes of this movie is this band trying to figure out a unique, (laughs) which like in a time when all bands had like more or less the same band name format. And so like you're, yeah. So your options are so limited. And then the remaining next half of the movie, if you don't laugh at anything else, like the ongoing joke about, no one being able to know what their name actually is based on the formatting of it is like a delight. So there are all these pieces that feel true to like actual band experiences from this time. Yeah. yeah. I was just, that made me wonder, as you said that, I was like, oh my God, when did we start having band names that were just like nouns, like, you know, deep purple or corn? <laughs> bread. Bread. Oh my turtles, God. Yeah, bread. Right. But the turtles, I guess it's like a midway point because, oh, the, right, yeah, but they're not doing mean. anything. They're just being turtles. And now we have verbs, like whole phrases. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Clap your hands, say yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. Exactly. We've just given up and we have sentences. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, I just like, it's a beautiful time when like Google ability wasn't important no. of figuring out your name. And so, like, there was that freedom, which was really there nice. were probably 12 The Wonders and they had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I like, like, that they have that each of these. To the point of there being like no conflict, but there being interest is like, I think they kind of do themselves a service by way of being like, Embry's characters go into the Marines. So we don't have to care so much about what his interests are. So we have three characters in the band where we see their like character and their motivation. And we spend a lot of time with each of those in a way that never feels, Mm -hmm. it never feels like they're trying to cram too much in, but you get a real sense of like what drives these people. And Sarah, as a person who saw this movie for the first time, like what stood out to you? About the characters? Oh yeah. Just about the characters or just like what, as a first timer, like what grabbed you with this? I guess like, what did you think it was before you went into it? And then what, what was your experience? It honestly felt like the kind of documentary you would make if you had complete access and if the powers of cinema could be brought to documentary in this way, because it feels like it, it just feels kind of more realistic than movies typically are, where it's like just the lack of drama and the fact that like these guys are all interesting, but they're not like overly interesting. (laughs) There's not a lot of nobility to the story either. Like none of them have like a big save the cat thing where it's like, I'm trying to make money for me and my grandma it's just like, we're young guys. It's fun to be in a band. It feels really good. Girls like it. We're making more money doing something fun than our dads do. And we're <laughs> going to get to see the country. Yeah. And it's just like watching some people do that. Like, I haven't <laughs> read any of his short fiction, but I know that Tom Hanks wrote the script. And I'm like, this is a really good script with also ideas about story that I think maybe you would have to be Tom Hanks. <laughs> to make happen where it's like so what's the like 
what's the structure, Tom? And it's like, well, this band, they like slowly get more successful. And then in the last little bit, it all kind of unravels and you just got to be there and see it happen. And it was cool. And along the way, there's so much very useful insight without them saying this is very useful insight about having a career being a person who makes things for people. Right. And which is, I would say is so drawing from, you know, Tom Hanks is someone who at this point is looking back on like what, like 20 years in the industry. And then I'd also. He and Peter Scolari. Yes. Oh my God. God, I just made that connection. (laughs) And it also feels like a love letter to 1964, which I looked up how old Tom Hanks was in 1964 and he was eight. Yeah. And I was thinking about how if I were to do that, it would be a movie set in 1996, which to me kind of connects with how this movie feels. Because like 1996 is like a time that I remember so well. And also the time when I kind of got my ideas about what adults do. So now I feel like I'm not really an adult because I don't run around drinking Diet Coke in a leotard. Oh, I do. Dressed up like Murphy Brown. Well, I guess I should just, why am I not doing that? It's, these things are available to me. It's no one's fault but your own, Sam. If I had a movie based on when I was eight, it would be 2001, which would be mm. a very depressing movie. Mm. Well, right up to late August, it was a hell of a boring year. It was a great year. And then... (laughs) A lot of sharks that summer, but you know. So many sharks. Yes. So Shelby, who, I guess like character-wise, who do you relate to most? And like thinking about like that character, like how does that character fit into the overall story? Honest, I mean, I hate to be that person, but I'm like, um, all of them. Okay, please be that Um, person. I do want to say, first of all, I do think it is really funny Ethan Embry's character in this movie, they don't ever say his name. (laughs) He is billed as TB player, which is the bass player. Oh, my God. I thought his name was tuberculosis or something. (laughs) Tuberculosis. I I just think that is such a fun little like. That's so good. Because like the bass player in lots of bands is often kind of just like forgotten. And so he's just literally he's literally the bass player in the whole movie. Oh I think I love Steve Zahn's character because I am hopefully trying to like be the comedic relief in stressful situations. Yeah, anytime it's stressful, I'm the one that's like cracking jokes and maybe making it better or making it worse, depending on what's going on. <laughs> I was obsessed with Faye. Faye is actually like on my baby name list. It's a great name. I was thinking that while watching this. It is a great name. It is. And she's just... I loved her clo- her wardrobe and I thought it was just fun too to just kind of be like, I'm just along for the ride and we're just going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Another character in this movie that I think is really important is just like teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Talk about that. This is something that I like feel so passionately about, especially ever since Harry Styles talked about it mm. and how we often like vilify or just like make things that teenage girls like we just assume that they're dumb and frivolous and stupid and Mm -hmm. they never make fun of these girls that Mm. are the secret to their success really Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of there's moments where it's funny you know and you see these girls like crying as they're performing and screaming and and it's funny but it's never like gosh these girls are idiots like can you believe that they are this crazy for this yeah. group of just barely graduated boys from Erie PA and it's because they're in matching suits. They enjoy the attention too. 
it's never like, you know, sometimes in movies about musicians, it's like, oh, I hate that I can't go anywhere without somebody recognizing me or I, I hate the crowds and all this stuff, which I get. But they were just totally like, I like Wisconsin. <laughs> and it almost felt like they had this understanding that this all could just end really quickly. Yeah. So just enjoy it while you can and get the most out of it. I think another thing I was thinking about is how many older people we have now that are just like, you know, like real estate agents or construction people, you know, developers or something. And then you talk to them and they're like, oh yeah, I was in a band in the sixties and we (laughs) went off to California and we sold a million records and, you know, and then they just are like normal people now. Yeah. I think that that's like the funniest running joke in the office is that Creed Britain plays Creed Britain, right? Like from what's, what was the bit the grassroots? Yeah. I mean, it's funny the way that they play it, but it's funny, like to your point, Shelby, is like there were, especially based on like the point from like starting a band to actually getting some like radio play at that time was a bit shorter right. than it is now. Right. And so you could know someone in your town who, again, to your point, like works at the local office or like runs like a small engine repair shop or something that was like the basis in a very successful band from like 67 to 69. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> so what are our things now that's like somebody could have been like gone viral on YouTube? A really big Viner. Yeah. Yeah, Viners. <laughs> and then I was like, and I'm like, what would I tell my kids? And I'm like, well, you know, I was around for the collapse of democracy. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. I was, I was the person in that viral protest photo. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say, I do want to make sure we make note of this just if people are interested in, in this subject is you're talking about sort of how it deals with women who are fans and our friend Chelsea over at American Hysteria has an yes. episode from February of this year called Fangirls, mm-hmm. which is kind of like an investigation into that archetype and sort of how it was developed and what the reality is and stuff. So, so if, good. if that's of interest to anyone, check out Chelsea's episode on that. And also if that's not of interest to you, then Chelsea will have talked about something else that's interesting. Don't worry. Yeah. Guaranteed. I love so much like talking about how like the conflict is low, but like the actual personalities are in interest or present like i like how steve zahn he's like kind of a fuck up like and like he's the guy who's like trying to borrow like a couple hundred dollars to like gamble with and then like it ends up as as we've said like it ends up sort of paying off in his favor which is great but he's like kind of a buffoon but he's not a sad buffoon like he's just like he's a total lenny yeah <laughs> yeah he has just like party energy <laughs> and he doesn't feel like lecherous or predatory like w- but he does feel desperate to get some attention from the women who are interested yeah there's like a real sweetness about that character that in almost any other movie, like we would have been subjected to at least a 20 minute montage of like his descent into like drugs or something. <laughs> and in this, we're just like, no. Oliver Stone's that thing you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 totally. Called The Doors. This movie is totally like an antidote to The Doors. Yeah. Where, and it's like, and it's just like such a fun ride. It's like, don't you want to come on this ride? Like, you'll enjoy it as much as a guy from Erie, PA. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And like, to, to the point where you said, like, this is another great Steve Zahn moment. 
and again, it was one of those things where I was just waiting for another shoe to drop and we just rolled on to the next cool thing is like they get that manager who has a camper and, you know, like serves them beer at like 11 in the morning to sign and their contract. Stew. And one would assume, stew, yes, in stew, and one would assume based on my experience with this kind of guy that this was going to lead to some shit. But like, no, there's like a very peaceful transition of yep. power over to Tom Hanks as manager. But Steve Zahn is just psyched for it. He's like, just like, let's make money. <laughs> I was thinking about this as I was watching The Queen's Gambit. Mm. And I just kept like waiting for somebody to be like the abuser. Sure, sure. And it never happened. It's like we're kind of programmed now to just assume that somebody that seems to have really good intentions actually has terrible intentions. And you're just (laughs) waiting for it to happen. Right. And this is one where that, yeah, that just doesn't happen. And, you know, you have Jimmy who takes everything a little too seriously and is mad that, you know, they're in a movie where they are Captain Beach and the Shrimp Shack shooters. (laughs) (laughs) But he's more serious than that. He's their John. Right. (laughs) And then I just love everybody else. It's like, dude, chill out. We're in California in a movie right now. Just chill out, man. I think like we're waiting from but like our personal experience, like our governing experience, we're like always waiting for some other shoe to drop or whatever. But like I could see a criticism of this movie being like, well, why don't you show some of the realities? And it's like every other movie shows some of the realities. Like it's just nice to have a Fantasia. Like it's nice to have no fan, Fantasia is not the right word there, but it's nice to have like a fantasy. I think it is a Fantasia. Is it? Yeah. yeah. But that also reminds me that there's this whole little thing where the bass player is dating a character who is in a girl group that seems based on like the Supremes or the Chiffons or something. And I was like, oh, there's going to be like a thing about being in an integrated relationship in 1964. And I was like, no, we're just going to show Ethan Embry doing a little right. dance. Yeah. They're just going to go on carnival rides together and have fun. Yeah. And even like the wisdom that co- you, you would think in reality, the wisdom that's going to come from a jazz player is going to be about maybe how the system works. <laughs> And and he's just like, no, just like like follow your gut. Like sometimes, you know, what do you, what do you say? Like we've only been we've only been in this band for two months, and he's like, mm-hmm. in some of my bands, that's been two months too long. <laughs> but I also like at the same time that like that could have been like a, and I don't know how other people read this scene, but like that could have been a dangerous sort of like what is it the kind of like elderly black character who's mm-hmm. like a, a mystic who like shares mystical wisdom he's like no just like trust your gut like it, it's not like a deeper kind of bigger thing he's just like this is what i have learned and it's to like trust trust your intuition which i kind of enjoyed i did feel like the hotel manager guy <laughs> yes, became a little bit too invested in the love story between <laughs> the two boring white teenagers at the end to be honest also, that guy was played by the actor's name is Oba Babatunde, I believe. And he has been in many wonderful things, but to me is a legend. Like if he had done nothing else, he's still a legend because he was in the episode of Friends where Joey pretended to be a dancer to try and get a role in, I think, a musical and had to teach a dance sequence to a bunch of other <laughs> potential dancers. So they all did a Joey dance and like... It doesn't sound funny when I describe it, does it? But it's gold. <laughs> Sarah, what, what we were texting back and forth about who we relate to most, like who do you see you as in this movie? 
This is a good question. I mean, I feel like I've got some skitch Patterson to me because I've always been overly confident about my work, I would say. And he has kind of a quiet confidence about him. Like he knows that at the end of the day, he'll always have Drummond. And if he's <laughs> I'm doing an impression of, I think, John Worcester's impression of Tommy Ramone on the best show, by the way. But um, <laughs> but if he doesn't do. have Drummond with the band, he'll have Drummond at the appliance store and like that's what's going to get him through life. And I identify with that. And then I also identify with Steve Zahn, who is just like, sure, I'm a fuck up, but I've got style about it. And it's kind of fun to watch me do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Shelby, what do you think people are missing who have not seen this movie? Like, what's your selling point for people to see that thing you do? Well, I mean, understanding my quotes is the yeah. first one. <laughs> what are you most likely to quote? I'm very anxious to know that. Yeah. Okay. I say all the time, I'm just so happy <laughs> <laughs> when Steve Zahn's character gets married. I love that. So one point for Steve <laughs> and the quote off. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think they're basically all Steve quotes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He's a quote machine. I'm definitely known to like bring up Captain Keach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> Um, as much as possible. Um, and I do love too when they're on the radio and he's like, This one time we were out way past midnight and then oh he just like God, couldn't even finish it. <laughs> I mean, because that's something I would do too. Like, I haven't had no like wild experiences in my life. So the one time I like stayed out till two in the morning in college is my like, Oh my gosh, you won't believe what we did <laughs> when really we just like went to a movie and a party. It's pretty extreme. Even the montages give time and space for them to be themselves. Because the right. whole like sketch answers that question, which is listing like 10 jazz influences, which right. is a really kind of fun thing. And then uh, we get Clint Howard. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> One of the things I love about this movie, too, I feel like the 60s were kind of like the end of for some people, not everybody, but the end of that like American dream idea mm. that if you're just really talented mm. or good at something and maybe i don't think that that was actually the reality but that's the reality we were sold i guess mm -hmm. you can be from erie pa and be in a band that practices in your garage and then all of a sudden be on the radio within a couple months and go see the country and do all this stuff you know in some ways that is easier now and in other ways it's harder now and also, you know, the fact that his dad owns an appliance store and they're comfortably middle class yeah. owning an appliance store, you know, and <laughs> and everybody in the family works at the appliance store. Like, I just love that. Like, I, I recognize that that was not the American dream for a lot of people. And a lot of people didn't have access to that at that time. But just that kind of like idealized, like mm -hmm. you can have a nice middle class life. And then you can go do this like wild thing with zero connections, zero industry insider information, anything, and then go back to your normal life and still just have a great life. We just talked about this at length in the Now and Then episode, which takes place in 70. And just like thinking about the transition of like time, culture, expectation, criticism, self-reflection, et cetera, that occurs from 1966 to 1970 is just, re is remarkable. I mean, it's, it's substantial. And like, this is, 
kind of right before the beginning of that. And we even see like interesting hints where like his father, the appliance store is reading the newspaper circular that's advertising what seems like a bigger business version of what they do. Like it's like mm-hmm. the business that's going to put his business out of business. Yeah. I don't think a store should have to be open on Sundays. Right, 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 right. Fair point. Yeah, we a totally fair point. He went on to run a Chick-fil-A franchise. Right. You can smell something's coming. <laughs> well, and I love in the scene where they hear their song on the radio for the first time. Oh, my God. It's an amazing scene. Best scene. I don't feel like people, I don't know, I don't listen to the radio anymore very much. You should come visit me. I'll make you listen to KMHD and oh. Kiss an <laughs> FM in the car. That sounds amazing. <laughs> but, so there's like a little bit of that. Like, I don't know how many artists get that experience anymore. You hear your song. Now it's like, oh, my song's trending on TikTok. I have made it. Right. And then also, I love the idea of like being in a town and knowing exactly where your friends are going to be Yeah. at any given time. And you could just like show up and know that everybody that you want to see is going to be there or will eventually be there mm-hmm. and not something that we really get to experience today as much um, yeah. and knowing like... If I just run down the street screaming, one of my friends is going to find me (laughs) and then we'll all end up at the appliance store and we'll just leave our car in the road with the doors open and somebody will call my mom when they hear the song to make sure that we're listening to it. Like, it just feels like something that doesn't happen anymore. And I wish it did because it's just fun. That should be the new city motto for Erie, the town where if you run down the street screaming, one of your friends will find you. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I think like that scene is so remarkably directed. Like that's really just like in a movie that itself is already like a gem. Like it's like truly this like just like diamond standout. It's such a beautiful layered scene it's like an amazing action sequence for something Mm -hmm. you wouldn't say is an action sequence Mm -hmm. like there's just so much movement so much overlap of like all the people you already know and all the aspects of this movie coming together it's really beautifully and like believably paid off in a gorgeous way and like yeah to your point like I was a kid into my teens in the 90s and that really feels like the last time what you're describing in the states at least feels like it was like a major part of your existence is like you know if you went up to point a there's like at least a one in two chance you're gonna know who you're going to run into right so like you get that a lot in the scene which is really beautiful but Mm. this god like this is i hadn't thought about this scene in a long time and i maybe it didn't affect me the first time i saw it in this way but like i think this might be one of my favorite scenes in any movie i've ever seen it's like one just so tremendously directed and so tremendously acted like every bit we get from each of them is gorgeous and absolutely believable about their character And, like, I love it shows, like, Jimmy, like, being excited. Yeah. He's, like, never excited about anything. But he's still, like, reserved Mm -hmm. and excited in his own way. And then, yeah, and then you have Lenny who just, like, grabs the cardboard cutout and kisses it. And it's just, like... (laughs) Oh, my God, I love that. (laughs) Because he has no game with the actual woman. Right. He's, like, trying to talk to the sister, and then it's just, like, screw it, I'll grab the cardboard cutout. (laughs) And just, they're, like, reluctantly excited and happy to see their kids happy. I think that's really fun, too. And and this idea of, like, oh, we thought that this was just a waste of time, but maybe this is actually a nice little hobby that you do down in the basement drumming 
when you leave the lights on. Yeah, that's what makes it a fantasy. Right. It's like da- dad comes around quickly. Uh, yeah, and like dad, mm-hmm. and like when they're watching the uh, Hollywood showcase, and right. the dad's singing the song, and he doesn't actually know the song, <laughs> but he's pretending to. Isn't it interesting how like whenever a new medium appears, it becomes populated by singing? Yeah, you know, totally, and exactly. dancing, of course, singing and dancing, because like early TV, so much of it is just like, and now singing, right? <laughs> singing. I don't mean to be weird, but like singing and porn are the two things yes. that like launch format. That's so like, true. The two things where it's like we're doing something new. No, I was about to say porn. I'm glad you said I'm porn. Glad. Thanks, I did it for you. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, that's why VHS that's won over Betamax famously is because VHS became the medium of porn. Right. And it's how the internet figured out a lot of its infrastructure, yep. you know, early on. Yeah, totally. Singing and then TikTok, all straight up to TikTok. It's dancing and What singing. are we going to sing and dance on next? Holograms? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A half a second hologram. The VR world. There's going to be a lot of singing and dancing. I love the idea that it's like with whatever the future technology is, it's like you record a hologram here and it just randomly projects somewhere else. And that's the thing. It's like you just like randomly descend upon the mall in Erie and like you do a little dance and that's the technology. Someone make it for me. You get to be like Wolf Blitzer. Remember that when he was a hologram (laughs) for some reason? They were like, this will really help people understand the news. I enjoyed watching that scene too as an adult in a former life, just a few months former. I was a TV news producer. That was my oh wow. That was my job. So I love watching the control room scenes in any movie too. Mm. And it was so funny too to watch them like reading the script and the jokes. You know, if you were watching it at that time, you're like, man, Buzz Aldrin is funny. I know. When in reality, it was like, no, some like underpaid writer wrote that for him and it's completely scripted. One of the kids in the hall. I also like, I like that you like watching the control room scenes because I also do, but I always wonder like, do people who do this for a living just find this annoying? Also, great control room scenes and miscongeniality. Yes. I think. And broadcast news. Yes. Yes. Well, that's like the, I would assume, the Citizen Kane of producer <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it depends on why you're watching the movie, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it totally is. It and totally and is. a lot of times they're not like, at least they're not realistic to a you know mid 30s level local tv station mm-hmm. it's like me and the director and a sound guy you know whereas on the today show they have 12 million people in the control room sure and every segment has a different producer but yeah that's one of the things i miss about news is being in the control room and being in charge is very fun mm. it always seemed really cool in these depictions. That's how I became a producer was I went to the Today Show one summer and saw all these people with like headsets, like telling people what to do. And I was like, why am I studying PR? I should be a (laughs) producer. It kind of looks like scenes of NASA in movies. They feel similar because it's a bunch of people in a room with headsets. (laughs) It does feel like that. And you're like pushing a button to talk to people and, and you're like the voice of God. Yeah, it's great. Sarah, it, you are our 
summer movie curator and i understand that this is one that was like requested it seems to have placed well at this time like what do you think if not by way of the season that's captured though we get them sort of filming the movie which is which is summary like Mm -hmm. what do you think vibe wise fits into a summer theme here hmm I mean, I think mainly it's the fact that it's like about a finite period of your life where it's sort of like all these wonderful things happened and there's a beginning and an end. And I feel like that's like a key part. I look like I'm making taffy the way I'm gesturing, but I think that's like a key part of one of the big criteria of the summer movie. Because I, I do feel like that's how a lot of us get to experience summer, at least at some point, as like a period of sort of... We understand from the beginning that like the terms of the deal is that none of this is going to last for very long. So I think it allows us to be parts of ourselves that we couldn't otherwise access. And that, you know, it's a time sort of dominated by being part of a group of people, which I think a lot of people experience in summer, too. Yeah, it's like with a mo- I think the song that you and I share back and forth of the most just via text mm-hmm. uh, unsolicited and sort of on the playlist and stuff that we do is Jonathan Richmond's That Summer Feeling, yeah. which is like about sort of the finite nature, the ethereal nature, the nostalgia for that time. Do you long for her or for the way you were? Oh my God, it's so good. And this is that for Tom Hanks as well. Like he's remembering... Aww. He's remembering when the time and the pop culture around when he was eight years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Tom Hanks is like really into the 60s. Mm-hmm. He started that CNN documentary, mm-hmm. the Decades mm-hmm. documentaries, and they started with the 60s. And I don't know if they had planned on doing all the rest of the decades or not, but he was like really into into that. And I love the 60s. Like, I just think... That is just such an interesting time. And you can see so much of how our world works today. You can tie it right back to the 60s. Mm. It's that kind of when you're eight, you know, you see more of the good things and the like fun and the magic of it Mm -hmm. as opposed to like civil rights and how awful it was for a lot of people. And so you just get that you're nostalgic for the good parts of it. And I'm sure that's kind of, as speaking for Tom Hanks, right? he's <laughs> nostalgic for the good parts of the 60s. Yeah, I think it's easy. Like if you're a middle class white man, the mid 60s is an easy thing to be nostalgic for. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was all mattress shirts and capris and soda and glass bottles. The possibility of starting a band with your pals. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, if I think about what 1996 was about, I remember like, the Macarena, mm, not mm-hmm. what was going on in foreign policy. Right. You remember like the big pop culture splashes. Can I just say the Macarena was fantastic. And I know that it took a lot of heat, like everything fun does. But like that thing brought us together. We need another Macarena. I think the thing that like often gets demonized like in those at those things, like the Macarena in particular, is like, it's always confusing at the time where people think it's the thing, but it's the like having the thing get forced down your throat. Yeah. And then people think like imagine that the thing is what's doing it and not like this giant entertainment apparatus that's been like, give us money. I had a Macarena themed birthday party. It was like possibly the last pop culture thing that I was fully on board for. And like people just want to dance so basic that everyone can do it. Like we really want that. We don't want to admit to wanting it, but that's what we want. 
Well, if you were a kid at that time, you had to do the electric slide at school, which was like someone explaining to you how to do a dance in the yeah. song. So like the Macarena is not too far behind. We did the achy breaky heart a lot in gym. Yeah. Same. All <laughs> the Cotton time. Gel. Ah. Oh, yeah. Another classic. <laughs> you know, if the Wonders had been a real band, if they had been real people, is that the thing that people for decades afterward would have been like, oh, you're the guy who did this and like. How do you get away from, is it like exciting to just be known for the, to be a one hit wonder and known for this one thing and everybody is like, hey, Macarena, every time they see you? Or is that just like exhausting? Yeah, is it oppressive? I mean, what's funny too is the potential anonymity of it because one thing that, so two things that that makes me think of. One is that Portland's Kiss and FM has something called the Forgotten 45, which is great, which is a song that was very big at the time and which has since been forgotten as implied by the title. And they, so they play a lot of songs that were very big in 1964 and which I've never heard in my life because they didn't end up in the group of like i would say approximately 500 songs that are and that's probably generous that are replayed a lot on sort of normal oldies radio and in sort of music over the years and then also that like even if you did do a song that's remembered like you have kind of an invisibility i assume as a guy in a band like yeah. who knows what the drummer on pretty woman looked like right 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 there's a beautiful too, like it's forgotten that it lasted as long as it did. And there's a great reply all episode about this, but like essentially like until Napster, it was entirely possible to have a regional hit that was like successful in a region that wasn't successful throughout the country that like people would have heard in a region. And you could have been a one hit wonder in like the Southwest. Or it's like people who are big in Canada, which is like right next to yes. us and produces so much media that. It's yeah, I, I mentioned this recently, but it's so funny to me that you can be like extremely famous in Ontario and then you hop over to Erie and everyone's like, I don't care who you are. <laughs> Unless you were on Degrassi, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I still think of Drake as the guy from Degrassi. Of course. Yes. Of course. It's the only right way to think. Of <laughs> I saw like the Carol King musical. And like I knew mm. Carol King songs, but as it was going, I was like, "Oh, I know every single one of these songs," <laughs> and I just never really realized, or I'd heard like covers of it, or and I just never quite like put it together that that was her yeah. or she wrote them. Yeah. So yeah, there's that, and I don't know that that happens as much now because you are constantly inundated with the artist's image as well. Or they're promoting themselves on right. social media a ton. Right. Like, even if you don't listen to someone's music, you're going to see their, like, line of matcha. Right. <laughs> their makeup line. You're gonna, yeah, totally. Their specialized, like, weed imprint with Willie Nelson's weed company. Like, you're going to see something that Ideally. they're making. Yeah. That was to Margot Price, specifically. <laughs> I knew a guy in college who went to, I think I have the band names right, but he was like, I went to a journey concert last night and I thought it was great, but I was really pissed off that they didn't play. I want to know what love is. And then I went home and looked it up and realized that's by foreigner. Oh, all of those bands are the same to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to those men, but that's in like prime noun band name times Asia, Boston, Chicago. Why yeah. are they all places? And 
travel right. motifs. Or how to get there. Yes. <laughs> Sticks. Also a place, no, we, debatably. REM, I guess, is a place of a state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, just quickly before we get to the daddy, a quick question. What's your wrapping pitch for this movie? I want to hear, like, if you guys, if you're, you've cornered someone who hasn't seen it, but you think they'd benefit from seeing it, what would you tell them? I mean, first of all, I think I would just be like, why don't you trust me? <laughs> I have great taste. <laughs> That just deepened this scenario in a beautiful way. <laughs> this party has gotten tense. Exactly. Tell me where I have led you astray in the past. <laughs> oh my God. It's a very quotable movie that has a song that will get stuck in your head, but you will never get tired of it. It's incredibly entertaining and low stress and anxiety. And I don't know how much we needed that in... 1996 or 94, <laughs> whenever this came out. It was probably the time we needed it at least, but yeah. <laughs> but we need it now. Tom Hanks saw the future and was like, we just yeah. need a nice movie that people can watch and have fun and feel nostalgic towards and see a little bit of history, maybe learn something a little bit, and then just have the song stuck in their head all the time and, and move on with their lives. And this is the last movie before Tom Hanks be isn't the last movie maybe I I always miss something but like this is kind of the last movie before he becomes Saving Private Ryan Tom Hanks. This is the last movie before yeah. he becomes a keeper of Second World War history for your dad Tom Hanks. That's true. Right, he's still Joe versus the volcano Tom Hanks at this point. Yeah, precisely between these two movies he ages at least 25 years. Right, this is like his last look around the house before he goes to the daddy house. He's like, goodbye, boys. Take care of the place. I'm going to the daddy house. That's <laughs> <laughs> where the daddies live. That's gorgeous. So, okay. So we know that the guy from That's My Bush uh, is the father in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, that's my Bush reference in the year of our Lord 2022. A very short. Donnie Darko's dad is the father in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> This guy was everywhere for a minute. Apparently. We know that he's the father. I hope he's still around and doing a great job. Oh, by the way, we haven't even, Sarah, we haven't even fucking talked about the fact that you thought there was a McPoyle in this movie again. There is a McPoyle in this movie. Dun, dun, dun. We talked about Charlie's Angels. The movie opens with a guy who's going to hijack this plane. And I was like, is that rickety cricket? And Alex was like, no, you always think that this guy is rickety cricket and he's not. He's roached from the people under the stairs. <laughs> and then we watched this movie and I was like, I think that a McPoyle was in this movie. And you're like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's roached from the people under the stairs. And I looked it up. Here, okay, here's the guy. It's the guy from Charlie's Angels. Yep. It's the guy who was in this as Heckler. His name is Sean Whalen. Yep. He's roached from the people under the stairs. You're drowning in the river. You're drowning. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a lesser McPoyle. He was a McPoyle that who was in an episode sense. that I don't even think I've seen. But he just... Looks like a McPoyle, I guess. You're totally right. He was a, in, we talked about this in that episode before. Like, he feels like he was the aesthetic prototype for the McPoyles. Like, he feels like he is who they were basing the character on. Right. What if they finally got him and he's their dream McPoyle? That's so great. So it's come all the way around. I love that so much. Okay, cool. That's great. So we know Donnie Darko's father is the father in this movie. 
Who, in your view, is the daddy? Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Tell us why. Tom Hanks is always going to be the daddy. I mean, it's obvious, but for anyone who doesn't know what Tom Hanks is, why is that? I love the scene where he comes in. And now if this had happened to me, I would have been incredibly irritated. <laughs> but I love watching it happen where he comes in and he's like, all right, the Oneaters, it's confusing. No, you're the Wanderers with the W. <laughs> matching suits. You all wearing matching suits. You, you're wearing sunglasses. Who's Faye? All right, she's your costume mistress. And I just love that, like, coming in, I see potential here, and I'm going to take you to the next level. And this is how we're going to do it. You run off stage, you bow, smiling, smiling, you bow, (laughs) and you run off stage. He has, like, a nurturing quality to him, almost. And, like, Mm. telling Lenny to go tell the pilot it's his birthday because he's annoying. (laughs) I'm tired. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Is that it? Go tell the pilot it's your birthday, which is another nostalgic <laughs> thing that you can't do anymore. Yeah. No. You just go sit with a pilot. They arrest you. Yeah, do not try to go tell the pilot it's your birthday. They don't care. And so, yeah, I think he's just like, he's got that uh, kind of, I'm in control, but I'm not overbearing. I'm not mean. I think you have potential. You've done really well up until this point and let me take you to the next level. Mm. I respect what you've done and I respect what your manager with the really nice camper and Stu has done. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to get you in uh, with, uh, what's his name? The, the, hello, Pittsburgh, that guy. The Kevin Pollack character. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, Kevin Pollack. I totally, we it's didn't so even mention Kevin Pollack. Yeah, it's such a carnival of who's that guy. There's so many good cameos in this yeah. movie. Paul Feig. Yeah, Paul Feig. Again, who I thought was Scott Thompson because they are shaped the same, but it's Paul Fair. Feig. I'm going to go next because they're usually better at sticking a landing. Than uh. Sorry, no pressure. But the... <laughs> The um, mine is sketch. I love just like it's a, it's a very simple thing. He like constantly quotes Spartacus, which had just come out around this time. He says, I am Spartacus a lot. That is like his guiding philosophy, I guess. And that's not why I think he's the daddy. I just think like a major part of how this song becomes what it is, is it's written. He's given an opportunity to play. And it's not even like a conversation about like what the speed of the song should be. He just plays it the way he thinks it should be played. And the rest of the band falls in line to that. He just feels the music. Right. Totally. And I really, I mean, it's like a really interesting, not always successful way of collaborating on something. Like it's actually like kind of a dick move. Surprise, we're doing something different. (laughs) Yeah, but it was in front of everybody, but it was the right move. And by like committing to doing the right move, he added like the special thing that like helped make this song work as not a ballad. And it transitions them from the ballad period into like the rock period. So I, I don't know. I think that that's beautiful. And I love that. Like he's the town's soul beatnik. I like everything. I like everything about that character. And he's as a, for like being kind of like a guy who loves jazz and loves doing things specifically the way that he is and being like that kind of guy. He's like never, I mean, particularly like a white rock guy in the mid 60s he's never as annoying as i feel like that character could be and i appreciate that about him the integrity yeah. of the music well that's kind of jimmy <laughs> like keeping the integrity yes. Jim, yeah. yeah jimmy is kind Jimmy's of the, the annoying one the annoying he tested one. at genius levels sarah <laughs> <laughs> i feel like tom hanks and uh and sketch make the most sense 
So I'm going to say that my daddy is Tina, played yes. by Charlize Theron, <laughs> who is Skitch's girlfriend at the start of the movie, and who who then just like quietly exits the movie through a side door, which I also love because I really dislike the cliche of the woman who is in your life to be a hindrance to you doing something important and who she then goes on to play. I'm pretty sure if I remember rightly in a time to kill mm. or, you know, like to bring back our friend, Oliver Stone, the sissy SpaceX part in JFK. Cause it's just always like this thankless role where you're like, I know that you have a shot at doing the thing that you most care about, but I'm a huge bitch. And she just like catches feelings for her dentist, makes that happen and leaves. And I love, I feel like Tom Hanks is just like, discarding all the allegedly obligatory elements of a movie and is just like, no, we're not going to have the like bitchy girlfriend and like dramatic breakup. She's just going to like collect her things and wander out of the movie. Yeah, it's beautiful. She finished early. <laughs> I like that dentists make money and they'll put some fingers in your mouth. Like that's what I like <laughs> the dentist. Anyone who puts their fingers in your mouth should make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those two things go together. <laughs> Uh, Shelby, where can people find you? Um, I am on Twitter at Shelby Hinsey and Instagram Shelbs25 because 25 was a lucky number for me one time. That's very lucky. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, and I'm just on the internet. You could, no matter where you go, you'll find me. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. We appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Of course, thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the transitions sound so sweet. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon or at Apple Subscriptions, where you get those bonus episodes that I was talking about earlier. Next week, you know, steal yourself, prepare yourself. We will be talking about George of the Jungle. It's going to be a fun one. I assure you. Watch out for that tree, my friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. You are good. <laughs>